0: this Uvila Audio presentation of The Secret of the Samurai Sword by Phyllis A. Whitney. Volume 4, Chapter 8 Under the Ginkgo Tree Three days went by and still there was no word from Sumiko's grandfather. So far, Mrs. Namora hadn't come either. And when Celia asked about the lessons, Tani put her off with, Mother! Mother! which meant not yet. Or possibly never. It was useless to struggle with the phrase. At least there were airmail letters from home, and Stephen was just as eager to hear from Mom and Dad as Celia was, though he was not so good about writing. Once or twice Celia saw Sumiko from a distance, but she didn't dare wave to her or try to speak to her. One afternoon when school was out, Stephen was over near the shrine playing ball with Hiro, Celia wandered down the hill to watch the boys for a while. Carefully wrapped in the pocket of her blue cotton dress were the two little dragon pictures, in the event she might see Sumiko and show them to her. Through Hiro, Stephen had gathered several Japanese students for friends, though he saw more of Hiro than of the others. He had forgotten his first notion that Hiro was an oddball, and now counted on him as a best friend. Although these boys were all older than Stephen. They somehow seemed nearer his age. Sumiko too, had seemed older than Japanese girls of her own age. Near the shrine, a section of railroad had been blocked off by the police so that traffic could not go through, and it was in this section that the boys liked to play ball. The shrines and temples seemed to be a part of the people's everyday life in Japan. While you had to take your shoes off if you went into the inner buildings of a temple, the grounds themselves were used as a convenient park. Often as she walked along the streets in the late afternoon, Celia would see little girls bouncing rubber balls on the steps of one of the numerous little shrines that abounded in Kyoto, or boys playing baseball inside the courtyards. Today, she walked along slowly, enjoying her growing feeling of familiarity with Kyoto. It was nice to know your way around in a new place. The old camphor tree up there on the hill, with two little girls playing house among its enormous roots, was now a friendly landmark, and the bright red decorations of some of the shrine buildings seemed to beckon to her cheerfully. Not even the sudden onslaught of the Bada Bada scared her any more when they bore down on her with honking horns. She got out of the way, of course, but she no longer leapt like a frightened rabbit. The only thing wrong was the lack of a friend to go around with. She didn't mind a certain amount of being alone she could dream better by herself. But still, she wanted a friend, and Sumiko was the friend she wanted. She felt rather proud of her brother as he made a difficult catch that one heroes' delighted acclaim. She was proud, too, of his easy ability to make friends, and of the way the Japanese boys seemed to like and accept him. Nearby, some little girls were jumping rope, and Celia saw that one of them had a baby tied to her back on a sort of cloth sling. As she jumped, the baby's head bobbed alarmingly, but nobody seemed to mind, least of all the baby who was sleeping through it. Hello, said an American voice beside her, and Celia turned to find Sumiko and her two girl cousins watching her. Oh my, but I'm glad to see you, Celia cried. I thought I'd never get to talk to you again. Did your grandfather say anything about the note Gran wrote to him? Sumiko shook her head. I was right there when Hiro gave it to him. Hiro translated it into Japanese and he listened to every word and didn't say anything at all. He just took the note back, folded it up, and put it away in his kimono sleeve. He looked so stern not even Hiro dared to ask him any questions. But he won't do anything about it? Celia asked. Mrs. Domuro is coming over. Maybe next week. It would be so nice if you could be there too. I'll wait till Monday, Sumiko said. Then I'll ask him myself, but my mother thinks he is sure to say no. Kimi and Kiku, the two little girls, began to pull at Sumiko's skirt and plead for attention. She picked up a twig and bent to outline a hopscotch game in the dirt. Then she spoke to them in Japanese, and each girl found a stone and began to play. That'll keep him busy for a while, Sumiko said. Let's sit down here on the bench where we can watch them and talk. Celia had plenty to talk about, and she sat down eagerly. I've been dying to tell you. I think I saw the ghost, or whatever it is, that comes to the garden of our house. Sumiko studied her uneasily for a moment. If we were home in California, I'd laugh at you. But it doesn't seem so funny here. What sort of thing did you see, and when? Celia named the knight and explained about the strange figure. Already it was fading a little in her mind because it was hard to go on believing in something like that. In memory, the pale, agonized face grew more and more hazy, and it seemed increasingly possible that a trick had been played upon her by shadows and moonlight. Those arrows, for instance. It would have been easy to see pine branches thrusting upward and believe they were arrows when that samurai picture had been so sharp in her mind. But Sumiko didn't question her story. She plucked a fallen green leaf idly from the ground and twirled it around in her fingers. The next morning, did you take a good look at the garden? She asked. I mean, did you check it for footprints? Or a place that was trampled? Anything like that? I never thought of it, Celia said. Besides, Tani-san starts sweeping the garden so early that she would probably have removed anything that might have been there. Sumiko laughed softly to herself. I don't suppose spirits leave footprints anyway. In fact, Japanese ghosts don't even have feet. Well, it wasn't a spirit, even though I did say that the next morning, Celia said firmly. I just let myself get scared, so I saw things. I hate to think Stephen was right, but maybe he was this time. Was it on Tuesday? Sumiko asked and gave her an odd, sidelong glance. My grandfather saw something that night, too. He mentioned it to my aunt. He truly believes that the ghost of his samurai ancestor appears in that garden. We can always tell when he thinks he's seen it, because he's keyed up and excited the next day. He stops painting and walks up and down in his room and around the verandahs. He seems happy about seeing whatever he sees, and he always has a better appetite and takes more interest in everything. But his daughter says that he is a little worried, too. He feels the spirit is trying to get some message through to him. Because he doesn't know what it wants, he's concerned. During the last few days, Celia had grown almost comfortable about that night, for she had come to believe the whole thing, something, that had grown from her imagination. But if Gentaro Sato had seen something, too... Don't look so startled, Sumiko said. If anything really is coming to that garden on certain nights... I think it's only concerned with showing itself to my grandfather, so you don't need to worry. Unless, of course, it decided it didn't like to be seen by you. Sumiko twirled the leaf before her mouth, and Celia saw she was hiding a smile. You're teasing me, she began, and broke off to stare at the leaf in Sumiko's fingers. Then she looked up at the tall tree from which the leaf had come. Its branches pointed toward the sky, and all along them, fan-like green leaves fluttered in the breeze. Do you know what type of tree this is? Celia asked. Sure, it's a ginkgo, Sumiko said. grows back in the States, too. Does it have any special meaning in Japan? Celia asked. I mean, any kind of story or legend? Sumiko shook her head. I don't know about that. There are probably sacred ginkgo trees here and there. Any terribly old tree seems to become sacred in Japan. They call this tree Iko. That means duck foot. You can see why. The fan shape did indeed look like the webbed foot of a duck. But none of this helped Celia. Why had a common ginkgo leaf been put into that box? She reached into her pocket and touched the dragon drawings. I have something I want to show you, she said in a low voice. Some odd things I found in a small lacquer box. The box was in an old Japanese dresser that looks as though it might have been around since the days when your family lived there. What sort of things? Celia was just about to pull out the packet when Hiro came bounding over after a ball that had rolled their way. He picked it up and tossed it back to Stephen. Then he took off his glasses to polish them and spoke to Celia. Quickly, she drew her hand from her pocket. She didn't want the boys laughing at her again. All is fixed to visit movie studio pretty soon, Hero said. Is okay with you? I'll have to ask my grandmother, Celia said. I know she wants to go. Stephen can let you know. Hero was looking boyishly pleased. I am being actor in movie. My elder uncle is arranging. He means he's going to be an extra, Sumiko said lightly. Though to watch him strut about, you'd think he was the star of the movie himself. Hero frowned at his American cousin. You are not knowing anything, he told her. Have you ever been in a movie before? Celia asked. Do you want to be an actor? He looked at her in surprise, eyes serious behind his glasses. No, I had not acted actor before. This is for fun. Like you say, I do not wish to be an actor. I will become sensei. Very important, very respected. Sumiko seemed bent for some reason on taking him down. Very respected, maybe. Teachers are always respected in Japan, but not very important. There are just too many of them. Hiro spoke to her curtly in Japanese and made a bow to Celia, and went back to the ball game. He said I am a stupid younger cousin and don't know anything, she explained to Celia but that's all right with me. I don't care what he thinks. All I want is to get back to America where I belong. She tossed the leaf aside and left the bench where they'd been sitting. Once more, Celia felt sorry for her and wished she could find a way to help her. It seemed as though Sumiko was doomed to live an unhappy life unless she found some way to reconcile the two sides of herself, the American and the Japanese. Apparently the ball game had broken up, for Stephen was approaching with another Japanese boy, and Hiro came with them. The little dragons would have to wait. Hi, Stephen said to Sumiko. You look pretty mad. What happened? No one answered. Stephen shrugged, and Hiro presented his friend Michio. This boy was as round-faced as some of the children, with the same rosy cheeks. He seemed a happy, lively sort of person, and he stared at Celia's blonde hair with unashamed interest. "'I've been telling Hiro about your seeing ghosts in the garden,' Stephen said to his sister, eyes twinkling. "'You don't have to tell everybody,' Celia protested. "'But Hiro's interested,' Stephen went on. "'He's on your side. Maybe the spirit is that old samurai ancestor of the Sado family, just as his grandfather thinks.' "'I know Hiro!' Maybe you could come over to spend the night sometime and we could watch for it together. Hiro looked startled, even a little frightened, Celia thought. But Sumiko didn't give him time to answer. That would be enough to scare any sensible ghost away, she said. Besides, how would you know which night to pick? For all we know, it comes every night, Stephen said. If there really is something, I'd like to see it too. Hiro, could you come over and spend the night sometime soon? Then we could watch for it together. Apparently these plans were moving way too fast for Hero's English. He looked at his friend Michio in concern, but the other boy's cheerful face showed no comprehension at all. He knew much less English than Hero. Don't you get what I mean? Stephen said. Look, if something comes at night in the garden, I want to see it. Maybe between us we could even nab it. Nab it? Hero repeated in bewilderment. I do not understand. I mean catch it. Stephen explained. Catch the ghost! This time Hero understood and shook his head. We cannot catch spirit. It's impossible. Sure, sure, if it is a spirit, said Stephen. Probably there wasn't anything there in the first place, but if anything does come, I think it's human. Anyway, let's find out. Hero considered the matter thoughtfully, solemnly, while they all watched him. Then his face brightened and he nodded. I am enjoying to nab this ghost, he said. Stephen grinned. Great! That's fine. If Grant is willing, we'll make a date with this samurai. Maybe it's not so funny, Sumiko said doubtfully. If you go stirring up things you don't understand, there may be trouble. This isn't America. Stephen only laughed at her words. It's all set, he announced. We'll have an obake night and see what happens. You want to come too, Michio? But Hiro answered firmly for his friend. Michio is outside of Sato family, outside Bronson family. Spirit will not like. Sumiko smiled brightly. Yes, for goodness sake, keep this all in the family, or all Kyoto will be laughing at you for trying to catch a ghost. But as they walked away from the shrine grounds together, Celia thought that perhaps, as Sumiko had said, It really wasn't very funny. In fact, she didn't like the idea at all. There wasn't a thing she could do to stop him once Stephen was determined about something. If Gran gave her permission, there would probably be an Obaka night. Chapter 9 The Silent Scream By Sunday of that week, there had still been no word from Mr. Sato in answer to the note Gran had written him. Ran seemed to think there was still time, but Celia was growing less hopeful. Even if Sumiko asked him directly, he would probably say no. Then she felt increasingly disappointed. Here were these wonderful vacation days slipping by, and there would be so much she and Sumiko could do together. Yet because of one narrow, old-fashioned Japanese, they weren't allowed to be friends. It didn't seem fair. Sunday morning it rained and they went to church, blaring their way through the downpour at a little taxi, but by afternoon the weather cleared. Stephen had met a couple of American boys who were staying at the Miyako Hotel for a few days, and he went off with them to visit Nijo Castle that afternoon. Celia left alone, determined on a plan of her own. Several days ago from the upstairs veranda... She had noted what seemed to be a narrow path winding uphill through trees back of the house. There should be a wonderful view of Kyoto from the top of the hill. Since this morning's rain, it had turned warm and sunny, and she knew it would be pleasant up there. With Graham's permission, she started out right after lunch, taking along her notebook and some pencils and an eraser. She never felt lonely when she was drawing, and perhaps she could do a picture that would be good enough to send home to Mom and Dad. Their house was last on this side of the street, and she turned uphill. Across the way, the Sato's house looked secret and quiet behind its bamboo fence. Reed blinds hung across the upstairs rooms, and there was no one at all in sight. Celia was recognized on the alley now, and a woman coming down the hill smiled and bowed in a friendly way. At the place where their own bamboo fence ended, the alley ended too turning into a second narrow alley that ran along the hillside behind the houses. Only a grassy path led upward from this, and Celia was almost at once in thick woods. In a few yards she came to a place where the path branched right and left, and there she hesitated, wondering which way to choose. She was about to take the left-hand path, since it went up a steeper slope, and looked as though it might go right to the top of the hill, When the queer feeling came over her that she was being watched, she would think nothing of meeting someone else walking through the woods this afternoon, but the feeling of being watched secretly was a little frightening. She stood in the middle of the path and looked around carefully, her breath quickening. The woods were thick and dark, the air cool from the recent rain. Everywhere there were faint dripping sounds as raindrops fell through the leaves. In spite of the sun overhead, it was still wet here beneath the trees. Ahead a twig cracked sharply as if someone had stepped on it. That was too much. Celia turned to hurry back to the street in the safety of houses. But at that point someone stepped right out into the path behind her. She whirled to face him and then almost laughed in relief. It was only Hiro. He saw that he had given her a fright and made rapid apologies to Japanese, telling her that he was So sorry several times in English. It's all right, she said. Why were you watching me from behind that tree? The boy's glasses made him look quite owlish as he stared at the tree that had hidden him. This time she laughed out loud in nervous relief because his expression was so funny. He looked as if the tree had behaved in a suspicious way and was to blame for shielding him. Then the meaning of her question seemed to form into some Japanese thought in Hiro's mind and he smiled at her gravely. I do not hide for you, Siria-san, he explained. I am hiding for babies. It's game we play. And sure enough, from the end of the alley came the three smallest ones, Kimi, Kiku, and the little boy, Joto. They were all brandishing butterfly nets, and they rushed toward their older cousin with cries of delight. Joto immediately flung his net over Hiro's head and Celia had to burst into laughter with the others. The explanation was certainly relief, even though the watcher had been only hero, and had still given her an uneasy feeling to think he had been in a sense spying on her. But now everything was all right. The children had released their cousin and stopped their play to stare at Celia once more. Jojo began to laugh and point his fingers at her. He said something to his sisters, and they giggled in embarrassment. Celia was curious. What did he say about me? She asked Hiro. The older boy grinned, as if he were amused too. Joto is saying you have very funny eyes, too big and too round. Please excuse, he is only a small boy. Though she knew Hiro thought her a little funny too, she wasn't offended. It was interesting to realize that she looked just as queer to the Japanese as the first Japanese face she'd ever seen would look to her. Already the children had forgotten her and were darting about, flapping their nets and shrieking excitedly. Whatever bugs or butterflies they were pursuing had plenty of time to get out of the way, but it was apparently all great fun. "'Where's Sumiko?' Celia asked. Hiro looked a bit disapproving. "'Sumiko takes lesson today in flower arranging.' like Japanese young lady. Vishin is very much Siria-san. He knelt and gathered up a few twigs and leaves from the undergrowth and stuck them awkwardly together at the base of a pine tree. Sumiko, he said, waving at the twig. Sumiko clearly was not very good at flower arranging. Flower arranging should be fun. Sumiko does not like, Hiro said carelessly looking with amusement at Joto, who was taking away a butterfly his sister had managed to capture. Fortunately, the butterfly escaped in the scuffle, but Celia found herself wishing that Hiro had interfered in the interest of justice and democracy. She turned away from him and started up the steeper path. At once, Hiro swung around in front of her. You are climbing hill, he asked. Why, yes, Celia said. There's no reason why I shouldn't, is there? Hero gestured toward the second path. Is better way. Is more pretty that side. But I want to go to the top, Celia protested. Other road goes to the top. More better that way. She thought his insistence odd, but it didn't really matter. If she wanted to, she could come down the hill by the path he seemed to be guarding so she smiled at him and went off on what she suspected was the long way around. The butterfly chasers were quickly left behind as the path curved back gently upon itself and wound uphill through thick woods of maple, pine, and bamboo. Sun dappled the ground wherever it could make its way through the foliage, and birds chirped overhead. Around a turn the path steepened, and she saw that Hero was right. It did lead to the top. Around a bend she came upon a red gate, or tori, arching over the path. The tori, at its simplest, was like two sticks placed upright with a bar across the top. But there were always decorative touches that made one tori style different from another. The presence of the red gate meant that this was the road to a shrine. There would Celia knew by now be three tori altogether before the shrine was reached. Perhaps these gates were the reason why Hiro had indicated this was a better path, and it seemed to her that he was almost relieved when she took his advice and turned away from the other one. No matter how she considered it, her encounter with Hiro still seemed strange. The second Tory appeared halfway up the hill, and the third was right at the top. The little shrine itself was like a house, with a slanting, tiled roof upturned to the corners. Inside were elaborate tiered decorations of red and gold, though unlike a temple, the shrine had no image of a god. Two small stone lanterns flanked the building, and away from the shrine, at a lookout point, was a low bench of wood and concrete, where those who climbed the hill might rest and enjoy the view. A red-leaf maple tree flung shade across one end of the bench, and Celia decided that this would be a perfect place to sit and sketch. Now that she had reached the top of the small hill, she could see the mountains rising still higher behind and stretching away on both sides in serrated ridges. Within their many extended arms lay the city, its sounds dissolved to no more than a hum in the distance. Only the booming of some great temple bell reached her, and its deep-throated sound seemed in keeping with this place and did not break the spell. After days of mist and sometimes rain, the sun felt warm and relaxing. She stood for a moment, letting it bathe her lifted face with warmth. The peace of the mountains, the quiet of this lovely place, seemed to flow through her. From somewhere in the soft wooded greenery of the mountainside came the liquid sound of bird notes, and she held her breath to hear the nightingale's song to the end. If only she could capture something of this wonderful feeling in a drawing. A picture wasn't just something you saw, it was, it was your feeling about it, too. Perhaps that was the most important part of a picture, the feeling it brought to the one who beheld it, all because the artist had felt it first. She sat down on the warm bench and looked about for the picture she would choose. Not a whole scene, but something simple and beautiful in itself, like that twisted pine tree on the hillside just below. She took out her pencil and began to block in the shape of the pine with its curved trunk and graceful outflung branches, the clustered needles that rounded the tree in graceful green layers. No wonder Japanese prints always had a special look about them. They were just like the countryside they depicted. You would know the look of a Japanese pine tree anywhere, she thought. How long she worked on it, absorbed, with the little shrine behind her and the city below, she didn't know. Her drawing took shape, and she was trying to get in something of the detail. In her concentration, she heard no step on the brown pine needles that covered the earth of the little clearing. She didn't know anyone was near until she looked up to find a man in a long gray kimono had come up to stand beside her. His bald head was well-shaped, his face noble and keenly intelligent. Even as she gave a little start of astonishment, she realized that this was Sumiko's grandfather. She remembered at once that he was a great artist and did not want him to see her poor little drawing. Quickly she flipped over the cover of the sketchbook, but he reached out and took it calmly from her hands. With the quiet, courteous manner of one who had the authority to do as he chose, he turned the pages of the book. Celia could feel the warmth rise in her cheek. As he studied her drawing of Japanese children sitting on the ground painting, her sketch of a stone lantern, and one of that great camphor tree with the huge uncovered roots. On one page she had tried to draw the head of little Kiku, and she saw him smile when he came to that. Then he turned back to the pine tree and studied it for a moment. With a gesture, as if he asked her permission, he sat beside her on the bench and held out his hand for her pencil. She gave it to him wordlessly, and watched while he pointed to her drawing, then to the pine tree, and made several swift strokes here and there on the paper. At once the pictured tree seemed to take on something of the beauty and life of the original, and Celia could see where the lines were wrong, where she had missed the grace that was there in the original. Gratefully, she took the book back from his long-fingered hands when he returned it to her. It's beautiful now she said softly in the drawing. If he did not understand the words, he at least understood her tone, for he smiled again and nodded benignly. Then he gestured toward the pine tree on the hillside below and spoke one of his few English phrases. My teacher, he said. She knew what he meant. It was a wonderful thought, the idea that the pine tree itself had taught him out of its own beauty. Celia forgot that he was Sumiko's stern grandfather. She forgot everything except that this fine-looking man was a great and distinguished artist. She would have given anything to thank him, to ask him questions, to gain advice from him. But his language was not her own, and a wall stood between them. Nonetheless, it was a wall that came only as high as their hearts, and over it the old man and the young girl could look at each other in appreciation and understanding. It did not seem to matter in the least that he was Japanese and she American, for they had reached each other on common ground. When he rose, he made her a low, polite bow, and then turned his attention to the shrine. Nearby was a stone trough with water in it, and a tin dipper laid across the stone. Jintaro Sato picked up the dipper and spilled water over his hands, then rinsed his mouth, and then stepped before the shrine, clapped his cleansed palms together three times to attract the gods' attention, and bent his head over his hands in prayer. He didn't seem to mind that she watched him, and when he turned away, he smiled at her gravely again, made her another courteous bow, and went homeward down the hill. When he had gone, she sat on in a dream, thinking about what had just happened about this man who had once been famous all over Japan for his drawings of Tokugawa times and the days of samurai and feudalism. Yet he drew a pine tree so tenderly, so beautifully. She would not work again on this sketch in her book because his pencil had touched it, and she would treasure that always. She still felt hushed and dreamy and spellbound when she started on the path again. After the bright sunshine of the hilltop, The woods seemed abruptly gloomy, their breath damp and chilling. A branch brushed raindrops against her face as she sought for the upper place where the paths separated so she could take the other way down. When she came to the spot, she nearly missed it because the second path was so overgrown with weeds, so little used. Perhaps that was because it was steeper and harder to climb. But going down shouldn't be very hard. And she wanted to explore this path as well as the other one. There were places where the reddish Kyoto earth had washed away, leaving stones exposed. And she had to scramble down steep banks or leap over gullies. Hiro had undoubtedly been right in sending her the other way. There were no tori on this path, and as she descended, the woods seemed to grow increasingly thick and dark. She felt suddenly alone and hidden away, as if she were in a place where no one would ever find her if anything happened. A sense of the eerie began to possess her. When she rounded a steep cut in the path and saw the black figures below her, she knew she was no longer alone in the woods. The chill of the damp shade seemed to seep to her very fingertips as she shrank into stillness. A man stood in the little clearing below, his back toward her, one arm set akimbo. Just past him crouched two small black animals. Beyond the clearing the sun shone on a bright green world, and it was that very brightness that made the figures in the woods seem so black. For just an instant she thought them alive and waited for them to make some sound or movement, Then she saw that they were frozen there forever in the stone from which they had been carved. Nevertheless, there seemed to be something menacing and evil about them, and she stepped warily along the path, as if the stone man might turn and come toward her, brandishing the sword that he carried. But the woods were utterly quiet. The figures did not stir as she tiptoed around in front to get a better look at them. Now she saw that there were four stone pieces in all, and that shallow, crumbling stone steps led up to them. All the area grew thick with weeds and fern, as if no one had set foot on it for a very long time. The nearest object now was a small stone lantern, not of the carved symmetrical variety she had seen elsewhere, but rough-hewn. It was no more than an upright column of stone, with the mushroom cap of another stone set upon it, and a still smaller stone upon that, to give the crude shape of a lantern. Beyond, one on either side, were crouched two temple dogs, moss-grown and ancient, fiercely snarling as if they guarded the approach to the stone man the stone from which the main figure was carved had square box edges and from one side protruded the sharp angle of the crooked arm one hand held an upright sword its tip pointed skyward and his rounded head wore a helmet of bright green moss but the thing that compelled celia's attention was the dreadful face that had been carved "'into the flat stone with a few simple lines. "'The eyes were wide and staring. "'The nose was two flat lines, "'and below the mouth opened in a terrible oval of a scream. "'The thing looked strangely human, "'and yet frighteningly inhuman. "'Back in the woods something rustled and a wild, unreasoning panic filled Celia. "'She turned and fled down the stone steps, and out into the sunshine, and it was as if the sound of that silent scream would follow her forever. Chapter 10. The Wagging Tongue of Mrs. Nomura It was the following Thursday morning that Mrs. Nomura finally appeared with her doll-making equipment. In the meantime, Celia had visited one or two of Kyoko's beautiful gardens with Gran, Monday, noon, Stephen had come with them to have lunch in the dining-room of the Miyako Hotel, where a terrace overlooked Kyoto on one side and opened upon a fish-pond grotto on the other. But during this time, she saw nothing at all of Sumiko now more than ever, she longed to see her new friend and tell her of her meeting her grandfather on the hilltop and her queer discovery in the woods. She was curious about the little stone man and about why he stood there in that lonely spot with his two snarling guardians. When she had fled so foolishly from his presence that afternoon, she'd tripped over a tree root and gone sprawling. The ground was soft and she hadn't hurt herself, but the fall had given her a jolt and further frightened her. She had picked herself up and rushed out into the sunlight to find that she was at the foot of the hill near the lower branching of the two paths. By that time Hero and the children were gone, and she was able to brush herself off and quiet her trembling before she walked sedately back to the alley and her own gateway. She said nothing about her experience, even to Gran. It sounded so foolish, for one thing. And for another, that look on the face of the stone man still haunted her, as if he threatened her in some way or tried to urge upon her something that she did not understand. It was a secret she wanted to confide in Sumiko, just as it was to Sumiko that she wanted to show the curious objects she had found in the lacquer box. Gran was sympathetic, and she would be interested, but just the same, she was a grown-up, and she would look at these things in a practical way that might easily brush the charm of the mystery from them. It was more fun to have a secret that tantalized your imagination and can turn out to mean almost anything. On Thursday morning, something unexpected happened. Before the doll teacher arrived, Sumiko herself showed up at their door, and Tani called for Celia to come downstairs. Sumiko's dark eyes were dancing, and she wore a smile that had nothing of sadness in it. Will it be all right if I come to the lesson? she asked. Celia stared at her open mouth. "'But your grandfather... "'I don't know what got into him,' Sumiko said. "'But last night, when work got around, "'as it does about everything in the neighborhood, "'that Mrs. Nomura was coming to give you a lesson this morning, "'he just said calmly that I ought to go, "'and that I should convey his thanks to your grandmother for the invitation. "'He didn't give any reason, and I don't know what changed his mind. "'And, of course, I didn't ask.' I think your grandfather's wonderful, Celia said softly, and it was Sumiko's turn to look surprised. Gran was out early that morning, so Celia took Sumiko upstairs to her room, explaining about her meeting with Gentaro Sato at the shrine. Sumiko gave a very American whistle at the end of the story. Wow! How strange to have it happen that way. He must have liked you, or he'd never have changed his mind. there are some strange things I want to tell you about, Celia said. Maybe you can help me figure them out. But before she could take out the lacquer box, Tani brought Mrs. Nomura upstairs. At first glance, Celia was a little disappointed. Somehow she had expected the teacher to look like one of her dolls, to be young and dressed in a lovely bright kimono. Mrs. Nomura, however, was old and wizened, And a little stooped her kimono was a drab dark brown with a dull obi only her eyes seemed bright and young but they were so lost in myriads of wrinkles seeming her face that when she closed them they were hardly visible at once she went down on her knees on the tatami and made each of the girls a low ceremonial bow then she looked up at them bright eyes twinkling and said hi ladies both girls burst out laughing, and Mrs. Namora looked enormously pleased. You like I speak English? she said. Long time in Tokyo. I have American friends. She had brought a furoshiki with her, a large square of cloth that Japanese use to carry almost anything in. Now she spread the big purple square out on the matting and displayed its interesting contents. These were patterns and pieces of colored silk and dismembered sections of two lady dolls. As she arranged these things to her satisfaction, she talked to them volubly in her rather strange English. Celia listened and watched, entranced, as Mrs. Nomura moved her wrinkled hands lightly, tenderly, among the beautiful silken materials, caressing a strip of embroidered gold brocade, picking up a bit of silk cord, tapping a small doll's head on the cheek affectionately. The girls were invited to select the heads they wished to use and the kimono materials, thin silk for the under kimono, something heavier for the top garment. Then patterns were spread out on the low table, and the lesson began. Everything had to be done with fine, careful stitches, and there had to be no mistakes, no puckering, no crooked seams. Mrs. Domora was cheerfully tyrannical about her demands, and would plainly accept nothing less than her best from either girl. But you could tell that she was enjoying herself hugely. She lived, she explained, in a house with a large family, not hers, and Celia gathered that they were all too busy to bother about her or listen to her stories. So when she went out to give a lesson, she clearly made up for her silence by chattering, especially when she found as attentive an audience as Celia and Sumiko. From the storehouse of the furoshiki, she took an ivory stick and showed the girls that the point of the stick would make a mark on silk. Thus they could indicate right on the goods how to duplicate the pattern. There were certain things that these geisha dolls could be doing, and those things had to be decided on ahead of time. Mrs. Nomura would provide each girl with the right kit. Celia chose to make a girl doing a fan dance, while Subakov chose the hat dancer representing a girl selling hats. As they began the painstaking work of preparing material for the shears, Mrs. Nomura watched their every move with bright bird eyes and let her tongue wag as she watched. Some surprising things came out in the two hours that she remained with them. Clearly, she knew about the book Graham was writing and thought it was a fine thing that an American woman wanted to write about Japan. And she seemed to know a great deal about Sumiko's family. She remembered Sumiko's father as a little boy, and Celia saw tears rise in her friend's eyes as the teacher spoke of him affectionately, but it was Gentaro Sato who seemed to interest the old woman the most. "It's very bad for him when Hiro's father die, she said. Sato's son very sick inside. She pressed one wrinkled hand to her heart and shook her head sadly. He knows here how bad... Thing is war. But I thought Hiro's father died after the war, Sumiko said. He was a soldier, but wasn't he killed in the fighting? Though at the house no one will talk about his death except in whispers, because it upsets my grandfather, do you know what happened to him? Mrs. Nomura was perfectly willing to talk. She reached out to tap Celia's hand with her thimble and correct the direction her scissors were taking and went right on. Hiro's father, she said, had been severely wounded in the war and had returned to Kyoto to recover. Before he could rejoin his company, the war came to an end. He knew that his captain was in Tokyo, and he went, weak as he was to be with him. His captain, sick at heart over the disgrace that had fallen upon Japan, felt that the only honorable thing to do was to kill himself. Many Japanese officers and soldiers had felt the same way, Mrs. Nomura explained. Hiro's father would not let his captain die alone. He had died with him, going honorably to the gods by his own hand. Mrs. Nomura shook her head sadly. I have become Christian Japanese, and I know this is bad thing to do. Is more better living so we give life to God. Celia's scissors fell idle, for she was thinking of poor Mr. Sato, who had given his youngest son to America years before, and whose older son had been lost to him in this terrible way. No wonder he didn't like Americans, even if his feeling wasn't an altogether reasonable one. All Sato's living in this house before war, Mrs. Nomura said, patting the tatami beside her cushion. But after war, Sato-san is worry, worry, worry about old sword. What old sword? Sumako asked. Old sword, long in family. I think I know. Celia put in. When we went to the art store last week and saw the picture Gentaro Sato had painted of his samurai ancestor, we saw a sword in the picture. The art dealer said it had been in the family for generations. Hi, this is so. Mrs. Nomura bowed her head in assent. Hero, father, take away sword, so enemy does not find. But hero's father goes to die in Tokyo, and sword is gone. Mrs. Nomura made a vanishing gesture in the air with both hands. It just disappeared, Sumiko asked. No, does not disappear. I hear Sato-san give orders to San to destroy sword before San go to Tokyo. But why did he do that? Celia asked. And Sumiko said, Besides, if he did, then why would he worry about it now? Plainly, Mrs. Nomura did not like to admit that she didn't know all the answers. She folded her lips together in a way that increased her myriad wrinkles and seemed to be thinking. After a long moment of intense concentration, she pushed her wrinkles into a smile of triumph. He's worrying for Manuki on sword. Manuki very valuable. Maybe son does not destroy Manuki. This was clearly guesswork. And when Celia asked what Manuki were, Mrs. Amora gave up, her English inadequate to explain. Having thoroughly distracted her pupils, she suddenly became all business and would talk about nothing but the marvelous history of the Japanese doll, and she scolded them gently for thinking of other things. When her time was up, she left the work with the girls, gathered up her possessions in the purple furoshiki, then made the knot that turned into a bag, and bowed herself out of the house. She would come again the same day next week. In the meantime, they had to work hard. When she had gone, Celia and Sumiko looked at each other with quickening interest. Do you suppose that's really true about the sword? Celia asked. It probably is. Anyway, I'm glad to have all that family history explained. Nobody at home tells me anything. Of course, my mother doesn't know all these things, because she was in America until a month or so ago. Did you say you had something you wanted to show me? Celia got up and went to the little Japanese dresser. From the lower drawer, she drew out the lacquer box with the gold pine tree on its cover. See what you think of these things, she said, and spread out the contents on the mat. Sumiko nibbled thoughtfully at a strand of her ponytail as she studied the objects one by one. The ginkgo leaf, the temple picture of Fudomayo, the tiny dragon drawing, and the cardboard key. The key interested her and she picked it up. Do you suppose this would match any key around the house? What keys are there around a Japanese house? Celia asked. There weren't any doors locked until the occupation people moved in and changed everything downstairs. Now we have Yale locks and keys and this isn't that sort of a key. Sumiko laid it aside and looked at the dragon pictures. They're not the sort of work my grandfather does, she said. He never works in miniatures like this, using so much detail. He's famous for what he accomplishes with a few simple strokes. There was some detail in the costume of the man in that samurai picture. I imagine that if he wanted to, he could work like that, said Celia, recalling it. Sumiko flipped her black ponytail out of the way and snapped her fingers. I know. Why don't we bring these pictures over to my grandfather and show them to him? Celia shook her head in dismay. Oh, no! It was one thing to meet Gentaro Sato, the artist, on the hilltop, when they had needed no words between them, and quite something else to intrude upon Mr. Sato, the stern grandfather, in his own home, where she couldn't talk to him at all. Why couldn't you just show them to him yourself? She added. I won't show him anything, Sumiko said, frowning. He doesn't approve of me. An uncomfortable silence fell between them. To break it, Celia started to tell Sumiko about the stone man in the woods, but she had hardly begun when Stephen came home from his judo lesson. They heard the floor of the veranda creak as he came along it, and he paused to look in on them, through the open shoji. This veranda's just like the nightingale floor at Nijo Castle, he said. They've got a whole wide corridor there that squeaks when you walk on it. The guide said it was built that way so the daimyos, the lords, would know if an enemy tried to sneak up on them. They say it doesn't squeak if you walk on it properly, but only if you tiptoe guiltily. It sure squeaked for us, while he was speaking celia reached quietly for the mysteries to put them away but she wasn't quick enough his eye had fallen upon the picture of the flaming god what's that he asked and stepped out of his slippers to cross the tatami in his socks to pick up the picture celia wished she had gotten it out of sight in time it's just a picture i found with some stuff in my dresser she said carelessly Tani says it's a god who helps people who are suffering to be strong. Whoa, look at him. He sure is suffering. Stephen dropped the picture and he knelt to look at the other things. The tiny dragons did not particularly interest him, and he scarcely glanced at the leaf. But the cardboard key caught his attention. What's this for? I don't know why anyone will make a key out of cardboard, Celia said. It looks like the tracing of a real key. Sumigo suggested. But what could it be for? Stephen turned it over in his hand a few times and then went out on the narrow veranda to stare down into the garden. It could be a pattern of the bomb shelter key. I think it's about the right size. But what's the point in making a picture of a key? Could a real key be made from it? Of course not. You'd have to know the thickness of it, too. This only gives the length and shape. Oh, well, the Japanese are always doing funny things. Say, don't forget, we're going to the movie studio next week. You coming, Sumiko? Sumiko shrugged. I suppose it depends on my grandfather. Since it's a relative who has asked us, maybe he won't mind. Celia put the articles away again in the lacquer box. It occurred to her that she might take those dragons along once more when they went to the studio. Perhaps they would meet someone she could talk to about them. If not there, then perhaps somewhere else. They had to mean something, after all.